With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks, and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Well, hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I am Rebecca Harold, your host, and I am so happy you're joining us. This is our very first episode of my show, and I'm really so excited to be starting out 2018 with this new venture to continue one of my passions, which is raising the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and also providing listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect the privacy of your clients, of your customers, patients, employees, as well as your family, friends, and of course yourself. Now, I've been working as an IT information security and privacy professional my entire career, over 25 years. I created the information security and privacy program at a large multinational financial and healthcare corporation in the 1990s. And since then, I've helped hundreds of organizations of all sizes through my consulting business, which is called The Privacy Professor. And I founded that in 2004. And then since 2014, I've helped close to a 1,000 more businesses to date through my additional business I founded, Simbus LLC, which provides cloud-based information security, privacy, and compliance services. Now, my goal with hosting data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor is twofold. Number one, to help all sizes and types of organizations to better understand current and emerging information security and privacy risk, and then also then know how to mitigate those risks. And number two, to help every individual in the general public to better protect their own personal information, and also to know how to approach those businesses with whom they entrust their personal information and know what to ask them to make sure that they're doing all that they need to do to secure your data and to not share it inappropriately in ways that could result in privacy breaches. I am so excited for our topic today. It is especially current in the minds of a large portion of the population in the U.S., as well as throughout the entire world. And you know what? It's once more making headlines in the U.S. as news developments related to it continue to emerge. Now, the issue is that of marijuana legalization. But more specifically, for the topic of our show, state legal cannabis and the importance of security and privacy within cannabis dispensaries about their customers and their patients. 
most people who are customers of cannabis stores and medical cannabis dispensaries, I believe they simply assume that their data is safe there. Or they believe that if they're paying in cash, then there will be no way for anyone to know that they have purchased cannabis. But it's important for them to understand that those are incorrect and potentially dangerous assumptions. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The personal data of those who purchase and use state-legalized marijuana and medical cannabis. How are those dispensaries securing all that data? Who do they share all that data with? And importantly, who wants to get their hands on that data? What are the security controls that should be in place to protect that information? You know, what worries me is how some in government and law enforcement are pursuing the collection of information about those who have purchased state-legal marijuana and state-legal medical cannabis. And it goes beyond those to specific types of groups who are against cannabis legalization, also to employers who want to use such information to screen their employees, uh, to businesses giving loans, and even family members. And I've heard of folks going through divorces where this information was being pursued. So that personal data about state legal cannabis purchases and use is very valuable to a very wide range of population subgroups. Every day I hear some type of news about legalizing marijuana, recreational or medicinal. Some are for it, some are against it. I did an online news search on legalized marijuana just before the show. And I found over 135,000 published news articles just about this topic. There is a lot of concern by those who depend upon medical cannabis when they are hearing about and reading reports. Coming out of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and about the renewed pursuit from our U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions to renew active enforcement at a federal level of prosecuting cannabis use within the, within the states that have legalized it, even as more states are in the process of legalizing cannabis. For those of you who have not heard, in 2017, Attorney General Sessions rescinded the Cole memo, C-O-L-E memo, which was an Obama-era instruction to federal prosecutors not to actively pursue going after marijuana businesses that are compliant with their associated state laws. In other words, if the state says they can be in business, then leave them alone, according to the Cole memo. Well, that memo was the reason many business owners across the country felt safe in opening up pot shops, grow operations, and medical cannabis dispensaries. However, this has changed with the actions of Attorney General Sessions. Many who are growing and selling marijuana 
in compliance with their own state laws are now worried about surveillance of their activities, about requests for their customers' and patients' information, and other security and privacy impacting issues, which is why I'm covering this topic with our expert today. This issue is current, it is growing in importance, and it has very significant privacy and data security issues inherently involved. But despite these growing legitimate concerns, I have not heard much discussion on TV, on radio shows, or even in many articles about the security and privacy impacting issues. So I'm really really happy we can cover this on today's show. Today we have an expert that can talk to this subject. Our guest today is Michelle Dumay cannabis patient advocate who is helping cannabis dispensaries and stores to secure their customers and patients data and also to help protect their privacy. Michelle Dumay is the mother of a terminally ill child born with a rare brain abnormality that required removal of nearly half of her brain at birth experience as her daughter's caregiver and medical advocate for more than 1,200 doctor's appointments has allowed Michelle to serve on patient advisory councils for two children's hospitals, one in Los Angeles and another in Phoenix, and also be an advisory council member for an insurer, Mercy Care. Now, as a trained chemist, Michelle first turned to conventional pharma for the treatment of her daughter, Fatima's seizures. She then tried medicinal cannabis to mitigate her seizures. And after some some success, Michelle wanted to petition her insurance companies for co-payment. Now, although federal prohibition is a huge issue, Michelle learned that many medical cannabis dispensers are not compliant with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which most of you probably more commonly know as HIPAA, which establishes the legally binding requirements for securing and protecting the privacy of patient data. So as such, the medicinal cannabis dispensaries typically cannot partner with insurance companies to serve and provide coverage for cannabis patients. So working to solve her own problem and the looming problem of millions of cannabis-using patients, Michelle entered into the world of cannabis governance, risk, and compliance. So Michelle, I am so happy to speak with you about this important topic today. Welcome to the show. Oh, Rebecca, thank you so, so very much. This is an honor. Well, thank you. And I know I'm just so interested to hear this, and I know our uh, listeners will be as well. Let's begin with hearing just a little bit more than what I provided in your bio about what led you to being a cannabis patient advocate. Please let our listeners know just a little bit more about about that and your background. So... Um, I, I'm the mother of two, 
And one of my children I refer to as, as being gifted, and uh, he's pursuing biomedical engineering uh, in the fall at a local university. And then my other child, uh, Fatima, referred to her as my gift. Um, this is a child who was very medically complex when she was about two months, uh, two days old. We were told that she lived to be two weeks to two months. So she has a lot of uh, medical uh, issues. Uh, she's she suffers from quadriplegia. She's legally blind. She has cerebral palsy. She um, is a G-tube fed child. So with that very complex and a laundry list of, of other things um, as a medical diagnosis, I wanted to pursue a health path for her that was sustainable, um, often with uh, conventional pharma, you have a lot of medical interactions and contraindications. And so I was looking for something that would facilitate her health, but with less uh, contraindications. And so it happened upon medical cannabis and was really just trying to treat the most mitigating factor, which was her intractable, intractable seizure condition, which for your listeners means that basically she has a seizure condition in which Seizures do not respond to conventional uh, pharma. So we medicate her, but not necessarily do the seizures stop. Um, we continue to medicate her because the seizures re- return, but often they do not return with, often they return with, with irregularity and with um, great infrequency and frequency. It just changes. So we're looking, we were looking for something to, to mitigate those and, um, that's sort of how we, we came upon, came upon uh, medical cannabis, just in her health, her health journey. Well, and it sounds like, considering what uh, you said your son was going into biomedical engineering, you must have had a great influence on him as well uh, to probably, is he planning to pursue uh, something along these lines as well through his <laughs> education? Absolutely. He's very much interested in uh, the intersection of biomedical engineering and even perhaps um, uh, the neurosciences. Um, oh. He participated, you know, 1,200 uh, medical appointments. At some point, he has to come with me, right? So I'm a single right. mom. So uh, he found himself very interested in, in the discussions that I was having with the neurologists, with the surgeons, with her physicians, with her specialist team, and trying to figure out how to mitigate the seizures. He wanted to know what caused them. He wanted to understand mm-hmm. better because... On the other side of, uh, you know, of this of this discussion, here's a child watching his mm-hmm. sibling suffer. Very compassionate right. child, trying to figure out and navigate for himself. How can I help? This is a part of my world. How can I impact my world? Oh, definitely. Well, that's very inspiring, and it's very inspiring um, to hear how your entire family now. I mean, um, you're really setting a path for for your son and also helping your daughter at the same time. So, you know, considering that then and working with your doctors, what then inspired you to go beyond that and then start working with the uh, medical cannabis businesses where you were obtaining your your uh, medical cannabis from? 
Sure. It became, as many things in life, uh, you know, you get to the point where there's some necessities. And it, um, for your listeners to have a better understanding, often when a patient is pursuing the use of medical cannabis, it is at the patient's expense. So while we're all familiar with copays of, you know, ten, twenty, thirty dollars, can you imagine when a patient has to pay seven hundred, five hundred, three hundred, two hundred dollars for wow. for medicine? Um, and this is the case of many patients, hundreds of thousands of patients across the country. So of course the natural question is, if my other medicines are covered by my insurer, why not this? And so we understand, of course, the federal federal prohibition. But once we move beyond that, and and we are moving beyond federal prohibition, the question becomes, are there other ways to have the medicine uh, paid for? And so when you get into healthcare, you realize that your physician partners with your surgery center or partners with your pharmacy or partners with, uh, um, with any medical provider and there are rules that govern that, those relationships. And one of those rules, uh, as you mentioned, HIPAA, says mm-hmm. that everyone that circles the patient should have certain privacy rules in place. And when I began to pursue and ask the question, you know, is this a compliancy issue in which my... Uh, medical cannabis dispenser has to participate, the answer Mm -hmm. will be yes. And so when I realized that, then I said, oh, I started asking questions. You know, Mm -hmm. who who certifies you as being HIPAA compliant? And and so then that's how we got on this road. Okay. Well, and I'm sure it was a big surprise to many of those businesses when you started to you know, explaining it to them about the issues involved with being in compliance with security and privacy requirements and so on. Um, so talking about security and privacy of the patients, how much is that uh, patient and medical data worth, especially if you if you know about um, the medical cannabis patients? I mean, uh, I know that medical data itself is worth more typically to the cyber crooks and so on, uh, but I imagine that the medical cannabis patient data also has greater value. So, you know, what types are the most valuable and why that you found? So, just so we can kind of be all on the same page, um, your data, of course, to a criminal has a value. Um, mm-hmm. Some of that, sometimes that value is somewhere fourteen, fifteen, as much as fifty or uh, seventy-five dollars per per data file, and they like to call it a fulls, right? F U L L Z, a fulls file. That might be your name, your um, your credit card information, your billing address, certainly your date of birth, and sometimes your security. Uh, code that's on the back or if it's American Express card in the front, right? So that mm-hmm. makes a full file. That file, as I said, has a value between, say, 15 and, and 50 bucks. But when you have a medical file, and we have to keep it in perspective, when you have a medical file on, on, a, on a person, you not only have how the person might have paid at that transactional point, 
But you have other information such as what often are the referring physicians for that patient? What are the other hospitals or locations of service that that patient might have had? You have other data such as what are their illnesses? So, you know, we can sometimes know in a data file, a medical data file, if the person is suffering from a terminal illness. So if they are um, being treated for uh, a malady at that center, but perhaps they have other illnesses, so maybe they are a, a cancer patient that also has diabetes. So you begin to have a total and full spectrum of information in a medical file, right? And so mm-hmm. that's why that medical file uh, often has a 10x you know, so instead of it being worth $50, now this file is worth $500 because it's such mm. a rich a rich and encompassing file. So you can imagine when you, and that's just a, a regular uh, medical file. So you can mm-hmm. imagine then when you have a cannabis file, which there's an entire vetting process that a patient goes through um, to become a legally, a legal card carrying medical cannabis patient, right? So Mm -hmm. that means that this file now has depth and breadth. And so that's why it has so much more value. Wow. Well, yeah, it it sounds, now that you explain it, that definitely makes sense. So, you know, when you're thinking about the value of that data, was there any particular event that happened with your or your daughter's data that kind of motivated you or inspired you to promote better security of all that data? Fortunately for me, I haven't had an event. It is, in, it is my pursuit of trying to not have an event, uh, mm-hmm. in, which caused me to sort of get into this uh, arena. Um, I know that in, in my state of Arizona, my uh, program, our state program, regulates that, uh, permits that patients have caregivers. And mm-hmm. so a patient can apply, and then if there's going to be someone to help that patient administer medicine, a caregiver for that patient can apply. So I realized quickly that if a dispensing organization was, was not protecting the data, that not only was I at risk, my, I mean, my child was at risk, or I was mm-hmm. at risk as a patient if I, if I were a patient, but then someone also who was a caregiver also similarly becomes at risk because there's a process for them, and so then you mm-hmm. sort of instantly have an exponential possible effect, right? And oh, yeah. To give perspective, a cannabis using patient has in in every state has a has a limited amount of cannabis in which they can purchase at a time and it's often perceived as a small amount so that means that a patient goes back to the dispensary regularly for cannabis meds so where you might go to Walgreens once or twice a month to receive a a, a prescription cannabis mm-hmm. patients often are going two times a month, three times a month, four times a mm. month, because they, depending on what their state allows, they are only able to purchase limited amounts of, of, um, of medicine. Right. Well, I'd never even thought about that. And, you know, now that you mention that, the frequency, I'm thinking 
it's a much different uh, probably manner in which you have to obtain the the medicine as well because it's not like you can probably uh, maybe they have drive through do they have drive through uh, do not permit yeah you have, so, you have to come in you have to present your your cards or your caregiver has to present the patient card and the caregiver card and then they uh, uh, look into the state system, confirm that this is an active patient, because you could be a patient but not an active patient, right? So your car could have expired, in other words. Wow. So then you are, um, it's kind of like when you go into a jewelry store. So you might go through a series of doors, so this is a process, so mm-hmm. there's no drive through Right, right. So that, and you know, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking this also adds privacy issues into it as well. Um, we're going to be coming up on a break here in a little bit, but before we get to that point, I did want to know how long have you been advocating that cannabis businesses take better care of their data? So um, my daughter's been a patient about three years, so a little bit less than, a little bit more than two years I've been advocating to businesses that they become uh, very, very entrenched and uh, abiding by privacy laws. So a little over two and a half years. Wow. You've been so busy. I mean, you've been to 1,200 different uh, doctor's appointments and then also advocating. So um, very, very busy for a very important cause. Um, we're going to take a quick break now. Uh, thank you, Michelle, for for the information so far. We're going to need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We're speaking with Michelle DeMay, Cannabis Patient Advocate. When we come back, we're going to chat more about security and privacy issues in the medical cannabis space. Again, you can reach Michelle using her email address, which is michelle at cannabisgrc.com. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as topic suggestions using my email, Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my website, Symbus360.com, PrivacyProfessor.org. Please stay with us. I know you will learn a lot and perhaps be surprised by the information Michelle will be sharing with us after the break. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, 
breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Simbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Simbus system. Visit Simbus360.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back. We are speaking today with Michelle Dumay, who, as a trained chemist, found an effective treatment for her daughter and is now pursuing helping everyone who needs that treatment, medical cannabis, to be able to obtain treatment and also doing what she can to ensure the protection of that medical cannabis data. So welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. So before the break, we talked about Michelle's background and experiences leading to working with medical cannabis dispensaries, and we started discussing the related security and privacy issues. And actually, um, I've worked with Michelle over the past few months to create a free nine-question medical cannabis patient data security and privacy evaluation for cannabis dispensaries to help them with mitigating their security and privacy risk. If any of you listening are interested, you can find it at Symbus360.com backslash cannabis. Take it to see where your gaps in security and privacy protections exist. It will not only give you information about the gaps, but you will also receive some helpful, actionable recommendations to help improve the security of all types and forms of your business information and also to help protect the privacy of your patients. So, Now I want to take a closer look at medical dispensary security and privacy and the associated patient data. So, Michelle, let's consider now some patient privacy issues. More specifically, why is the security and privacy of children's medical data typically a bigger concern than the patient data of adults? Terrific question, Rebecca. Um, typically, a, a patient, an adult patient, so a patient that's over the age of 18, any patient, any person actually over the age of 18 <clears throat> in all 50 states has the ability to lock, 
retrieve or monitor that data. Mm-hmm. However, in I believe as late as 2016 and 27 of the U.S. states, mm-hmm. medical data, private data, identifying information for persons that are below the age of 18 cannot be locked, cannot be protected, cannot be frozen. Now, isn't that a crazy thing? And that is, those are state laws, <laughs> yes, absolutely state crazy. Laws. And, you know, when they made those laws, I think they weren't, they weren't really looking at the fact that, just think about if you, if you take a child's social security number and a child's medical data, you know, a lot of times people don't know their data has been breached until they see it on their credit card statements, right? Or they get uh, some sort of credit report, but... When's a child going to be using a credit card? When's a child going to be applying for a loan? And so, yeah, so look at all the years that that data can be misused. Correct. Before any, so uh, wouldn't that be terrible to to have the entire time that you're trying to care for your child, uh, having somebody perhaps misusing it, and then when your child gets to the age where they can't start doing this, then they have bad credit from day Correct. one. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Um, and and this, is, this was the reason that this became such a clarion call for me. Um, I have a child that may never reach the age of maturity. So what a loss, you know, for, for her between now and then if she were to be compromised. Uh, if I were to live in one of those states where data could not be on the on a pediatric uh, individual locked, yes, yeah, that those need to change, and um, you know that that's another topic for another time, I think. But we definitely need to have some more um, logical lo- laws with regard to privacy that apply to everyone, not just folks of a certain age. Um, yes. So. Earlier we talked about, you know, you can't just go through a drive-through when you're getting medical cannabis. You have to, you need to park, you need to get out, walk in, you need to show your identification. What are some of the other security and privacy risks that you're seeing actually within the cannabis stores and dispensaries themselves? So if we were to go inside of a store uh, in some, some states, uh, imagine that it's, as I said earlier, like a jewelry store. So some jewelry stores you go into, uh, you walk into, you walk through a series of enclosures. So there is a, a door that locks in front of you or a door that locks behind you. Uh, only one of those doors is open at a time. You step into the retailing area and m- most of the uh, Canameds are sometimes under glass in much the way a piece of jewelry, a fine piece of jewelry is under glass. And you uh, interact with the retailer. They're often called now, bud, bud tenders. Go ahead, Bud Rebecca. tenders. Well, and yes. so when you're in there, are you the only one in at a time or do you have like lots of other people potentially around you? Sure. So that was going to be my next description. Indeed, sometimes uh, it is just like a jewelry store where you there are many bud tenders and there are many uh, many patients. Or 
in non-medical situations, there are many customers. And so uh, sometimes states regulate the number of persons that can be in the retailing area. Remember, we're talking about a system that is determined, was regulated by a state body, mm-hmm. and sometimes often mm-hmm. by a, a municipality. So the city or the state might regulate the number of persons in a gallery or in the retail area at a time. Other states do not, right? So you have, um, in general, you are not in the retail space by yourself. There are other persons. And so we come upon this issue where I'm talking to you perhaps as a pa- you know, I'm the patient. Let's pretend I'm the patient. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking to you, to the bud tender, about my, um, uh, maybe I'm a qualifying patient because I have cancer, right? So I'm looking for mm-hmm. a med that would mitigate my nausea. Well, next to me, or, or even next to you is a, could be another patient talking to mm-hmm. another butt tender or sometimes another patient listening to your butt tender talk to you about your medical malady. So there in that sort of exchange, the privacy of the patient, you know, is, is compromised. Oh, yeah. And just think, you know, with today's technology, um, how quick people are to use their smartphone if they see something or hear something that they want to live stream or they think might be interest interesting. Do they have any restrictions on how? Sure. Okay. Some, there are some municipalities or some states that have regulated that no recording can happen inside of the retail area. Mm, okay. So you 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 might have persons that are observant. But you mm-hmm. might have persons that turn on the recorder, put it in their pocket, and mm-hmm. go inside to the dispensary. How would we know? Right, right. Well, and there's devices now that are so easy to turn on without even being obvious. So, Correct. Um, voice activated. Say a certain word with some of these apps, and it turns on your voice recorder or your audio recorder on your smartphone. Um, Correct. Like Siri. I mean, that's that's an app, and you can uh, ask uh, a question. All of a sudden, it's recording, right? So, Correct. interesting. Well, and then talking about that, then, if there's restrictions on what the patients and the customers can do with regard to recording, what about the, the store or the dispensary itself? I mean, I, I anticipate they probably have... Um, surveillance cameras, security cameras that are recording everything? To my, to my knowledge, every single state has a requirement to record the physical oh. premises. I, I, there might, and forgive me, there, there are states coming on board and changing their rules, and then there are municipalities that are changing their rules. We're talking about thousands of jurisdictions, right? So I, I'm right. not familiar with every single one, but in general, states, when they began to regulate their programs, that was one of the requirements for security, that there is a recording system in place to record transactions. So that means you as a patient are being seen and recorded to record the premises. So that means that you as a, as a patient are being seen coming and leaving a premises or a customer being seen coming and leaving a premises. So, yes, there's generally some form of recording that, that uh, states have um, regulated as, wow. as being required. That, and that's so interesting to me because, you know, one of the primary requirements under HIPAA, which I understand that right now 
since that's a federal regulation, it doesn't apply a lot of times uh, unless you have a state law that, that makes it so. But, you know, there you are required to give notice to your patients for when their data would be collected, how it's being shared, and so on. And so in the dispensaries or the shops, are there any types of notices that have to be um, displayed to say everything that takes place within this facility is being recorded and how they would use that, the recordings and maybe who it would be shared with? I wish I could speak to every single location uh, where there's a medical um, program. I cannot, but I can say this. In, the, in most cases, from what I can read from, from state laws that I've been able to review, mm-hmm. often the state mandates that there is a sign that posts that, um, that recording is being done. Okay. So a patient, at least, or a customer, um, knows that the premises are being recorded. It's Mm -hmm. well understood in the cannabis community that dispensaries have, as a part of protection, a recording or surveillance system. Mm -hmm. So this is is one of those things that you just accept and you know. But do we have something formally? Most patients or most visitors don't have a, you know, a formal written notice, but we do have, usually there's a sign that you, one can see that says this, um, this premises is under surveillance. Well, and then related to that, do you know, um, and I realize that they're also very different, but sure. do, you, do you know who they share those, uh, like if there's restrictions on who that those videos can be shared with or do you know if uh, there have been requests to get access to those types of recordings? Anecdotally, I have heard mm-hmm. attorneys speak about um, some regulating agencies asking for access to uh, different bits of, of, of uh, security information. Sometimes it has been uh, one attorney shared with me that a dispenser was asked to supply uh, footage, uh, the surveillance footage. Um, Anecdotally, I've heard there might have been a crime that was committed, not necessarily in the dispensary, but near to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, how surveillance works, it doesn't just, the cameras aren't always just focused straight down on who's Mm -hmm. entering and who's exiting. So um, I've heard anecdotally that um, files of, uh, of patients who had visited the dispensary, maybe this was in 2013 or 2015, um, where the, the dispensary is asked to turn over um, lists of patients, right? Uh, right? I believe this was in Southern California, maybe San Diego. So, yes, I have heard of instances where other entities were asked to turn over that private and protected data to authorities, yes. So, you know, that that kind of leads us into the next um, question about legalization. You know, mm-hmm. as far as the legalization of medical cannabis, it's kind of been building over the years. But as you see that legalization, the associated issues 
um, come along with like you have to have the surveillance cameras, but then is there's not really any um, legal requirements. Perhaps there are some, perhaps there are none in the different states about what you do with that data. So can you provide just a high-level, quick overview of the, the history of medical cannabis legislation? Like how, how long has it been around? Sure. So um, very quickly, uh, the founding fathers were involved with cannabis. Let's, I'll just really. <laughs> oh, yes. The first flag was, was, was uh, uh, out of hemp fiber. Um, it was required uh, of Jamestown settlers to grow cannabis for the British crown. That was one of the requirements. Wow. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, uh, James Madison, uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, all cultivated hemp, right, cannabis. And John Quincy Adams, uh, if you search his history, he comp- compiled a detailed study of the plant. And if you just kind of move forward, because we have a little bit of time, but in the early 1900s, in every apothecary in America, you could find cannabis elixirs or cannabis um, medicine. So somewhere around the 30s and 40s, um, we began to see a very large crackdown. Um, and then that's really when you say the political tides turned. Um, then until... 1970, we had the Controlled Substances Act that was passed, and that sort of established the U.S. federal drug policy. But then Mm. in somewhere around 1996, California was the first state to have a legalized medical cannabis program. It was that long ago, huh? Wow, I didn't realize it was that long ago. And and listen to this. The the timing of HIPAA, right, and the timing of... Legalization of cannabis again are actually married, and what they a fascinating, are. what a fascinating history and corollaries that happened between those two. But we'll just skip over that. It's another show, maybe. <laughs> but um, so from '96 until now, we've almost come full circle. Um, so some 30 states, District of Columbia, um, Puerto Rico, and Guam, which are U.S. territories, all have broadly legalizing marijuana. Uh, laws in some form or another. There are eight legal adult use states in District of Columbia, so that makes nine. 22 legal medical use states. Um, then we have 16 or so CBD only states. And these are, these numbers are very now, fluid. Because, be- before you go on, what does CBD mean for our, our listeners? Yes, so CBD is uh, uh, cannabidiol. It's one of 104 components or maybe a little bit more than 100, uh, 150 active components in the cannabis plant. Um, and so this is the, the form of, this is the component of cannabis that is uh, non-euphoric. It's the one oh. that's neuroprotective. Interestingly enough, it is the one for which the federal government has a patent. Um, oh. Yes. I didn't know that either. That's very interesting. Yes. So, um, and then we have some states that uh, are, that have uh, small amounts of, are are permitted and sort of decriminalized. And then we have some states where there are no decriminalization laws, medical marijuana is not allowed, um, 
cannabis-containing cannabidiol is not permitted. Very few. We only have three of those kind of states. But um, if since we're talking about 22 of this, 14 of that, 16 of that, if if anyone wanted to email me, please feel free. Again, it's uh, Michelle at uh, CannabisGRC.com if that helps. Oh, yeah. Very, very good. I'm sure some of our listeners will want to know more. And what's interesting is the fact that, again, at the federal level, um, it's still illegal. But what you just listed, that's the overwhelming majority of states that have (laughs) some type of legalization and, um, you know, some of the other requirements. So Sure. 20... 2017 and the elections uh, were actually a, a tipping point, and that's where a lot of states realized that um, 69, I think, or 70% of U.S. population said, hey, you know what, we'd like some form of legalization. States began to act. Um, a groundswell happened. We saw that tipping point in, in, in 2017, and so that's why you have those, those very high numbers. It used to be in the early... 60s that 12% when Pew did a, a study, 12% of the population, U.S. population said, "Hey, that's mm-hmm. well." Only 12% of us believe that that legalizing cannabis is a good thing. Now we're at 70%, 69, 69.2, 69.5. I forgot the exact number that Pew mm-hmm. registered, but 60 to 70% of us are saying we'd like a legalization form. Well, especially as they develop medical cannabis um, capabilities and like with your experience I think it's so important for folks to to hear from you I mean your specialty your expertise was in chemistry and so you tried all these other types of drugs and you found that for your daughter basically medical cannabis was the thing that had the most um, effect from what what you've said so far So, sure, she uses conventional pharma, but what we found with conventional pharma is that there were so many side effects. We're still Uh having side effects, and we still use some conventional pharma, but we're on the path to reduction of that conventional pharma and increasing the cannabis because we were able to have other cognitive gains with her. My -hmm. kids started using medical cannabis, and uh, she walked 100 feet in a gait trainer. She had never done that. The school called me and said, Michelle, is she on medical cannabis? I said, yes. I said, how do you know? She said, because the PT, the physical therapist, worked with her today, and this is the first time we've seen her walk aided, very aided. You know, this wasn't a miracle, but very aided, Mm -hmm. uh, 100 feet. She had never done that before. Wow. Um, That that is amazing. And I think for our listeners, they need to understand when you're talking about medical cannabis, and I've actually had people, when I was telling them, uh, you know, just... um, some of the topics that I was going to cover on the sure. show, I mentioned medical <laughs> cannabis. Someone said, well, how can you get a child to smoke marijuana? And I said, it's not through smoking. So I think it would be helpful for you to just kind of explain how uh, you, you know, provide this. Sure, sure. So just, just for listeners, um, my daughter does not smoke cannabis, but rather the form of the medicine that she consumes is is extracted extracted so remember she's a g2 user so she does not take a lot of food or nutrient by mouth so this is a liquid that is extracted through an extraction process 
and is then mixed with, I believe hers is mixed with uh, coconut oil and then made into, you know, a, a, an elixir, which I then use a syringe to administer through her G-tube. Other patients, uh, pediatric patients and other cannabis-using patients uh, consume in a pill form, consume mm-hmm. in a liquid form, consume in a tea, uh, uh, like or hot cocoa. I have, I have some of... Um, familiarity with parents who, right before bedtime, give um, their child a, a, a drink and sort of just stir it or mix it in, and the child, mm-hmm. the child just consumes it, and they kiss mommy goodnight, and they go to sleep. So pill, um, uh, elixir, just regular liquid. Uh, sometimes um, I know some patients who uh, m- put it over food or in food. They're sometimes they're in edibles. Um, over salads, just a variety of consumptive measures. Some parents have children that are, or even have some patients that are, uh, use it as a suppository. So mm-hmm. some patients consume it sublingually underneath their tongue. Variety of consumption methods other than smoking. So, and I think that's important for our listeners, for those of, you, of them who may have thought differently. So, when you are providing this type of medicine, and it truly is medicine, it, it's not the same as what people would, you know, what you would think of or what they might be thinking of. They're not just smoking. In fact, you probably wouldn't even know that your child was taking medicine when they saw if they were looking directly at her taking the medicine. So I think that's important. Um, You know what? I I hate to say it, but we're getting here close to the end of our uh, show. And I could talk with you for so much longer because there's so many other things. But I guess what would be one tip in, in maybe 30 seconds, if you could give me one tip how consumers can better protect their patient data or, or maybe just one thing you want people to take away from this segment about our topic today. Your data is important. Find the way in which is easy for you to protect it. If it means freezing it, locking it, or otherwise handling it, make, making sure that your data is just secure Seek to do that. It's very, very important. And if it's a child for which you need to seek, then, then definitely uh, take those, me- those methods to secure it. And don't assume that others are doing it for you, right? <laughs> never, never assume. Never, never assume. assume. Take it into your own hands. Secure it. Well, and you you are a great example of of doing that, and I admire you so much for all that you've done and uh, for all of that you're doing. So Those thank are kind you. Words. Well, Those and are it's kind words. Thank you. It's very true. Thank you so much, Michelle, for being on the show and providing such insightful information, so relevant to a growing number of the population. So today we've been speaking with Michelle Dumay, cannabis patient advocate, about how medical cannabis has greatly improved her daughter Fatima's uh, seizures, how so many other patients can benefit from medical cannabis. So as more states are making it legally available nationwide, there is a growing need to better protect the data of medical cannabis patients, along with the need to protect the privacy of all 
involved. Again, you can reach Michelle at Michelle at CannabisGRC.com. Also, I want to remind you about that free nine-question medical cannabis patient data security and privacy evaluation that Michelle and I created. You can find it at Symbus360.com backslash cannabis. Take it to see where your gaps are in security and privacy protections and where they exist. Not only will it give you information about the gaps, but you'll also receive some actionable recommendations to improve the security and privacy. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor, pursuing my goal to help all businesses and the general public to be more aware of security and privacy risks and issues, and also how to mitigate those risks and better protect privacy. You can contact me with questions, comments, and show topic ideas by using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com, which is my name at myname.com, basically. Also, please visit my sites, Symbus360.com, PrivacyProfessor.org, and PrivacyGuidance.com. Until next week, I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, when you go to your job, when you do your daily work activities, or when you encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Thank you and goodbye until next week. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.